Welcome back to a new episode of Empathy Always Wins. My name is Ali Salama, and I am your host for the world's exclusive youth leadership podcast on empathy and community building. Today, we have a special guest by the name of Maria Ross. Maria Ross, the founder of brand consultancy Red Slice, believes cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. She advises entrepreneurs, startups, and fast growth businesses on how to stand out, attract the right customers, and accelerate revenue. Maria is the author of multiple books, including her latest, The Empathy Edge, harnessing the value of compassion as an engine for success and branding basics for small businesses. Maria understands the power of empathy on brand and personal levels. In 2018, shortly after launching her business, she suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm that almost killed her and inspired her Amazon best-selling memoir, Rebooting My Brain. She has spoken to audiences ranging from the New York Times to blog her and has featured in and written for numerous media outlets, including MSNBC, Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur Entrepreneur.com, NPR, Huffington Post, and Forbes.com. Maria lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, young son, and precious mutt. Here's the really good thing about this episode. I did not anticipate what Maria had to say about utilizing and deploying empathy from a business perspective. I'm going to shut up right now because we really need to listen to this episode. It was one of my personal favorites because of Maria's empathy edge. And that's actually her book's name. It's not just her competitive edge. (laughs) All right, let's get cracking with this episode right now. This episode is sponsored by Empower Mag, the Middle East's mental health and wellness magazine. Check out Empower Mag for all the latest and newest articles. Now let's dive deep into our latest episode of Empathy Always Wins. Maria, thank you so much for for coming on Empathy Always Wins. Uh, You know, when Jeremy Miller introduced uh, us together, uh, he knew that he knew exactly who, 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 we should, who he should connect me to. And he's like, this is the empathy person you need to talk to. So without further ado, I'd love, I'd love for you to take the floor and uh, tell our audience a little bit more uh, about what you do and, 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 and feel free to go from there. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, especially on a podcast called Empathy Always Wins. <laughs> um, I, a little bit about me. I am the founder of a brand consultancy called Red Slice, and I help entrepreneurs as well as small to mid-sized growth businesses tell their brand story so that they stand out, they attract the right clients, and they grow the revenue. And I've been a storyteller all my life throughout my entire career. Um, Even from when I was a kid, I was a child actress. So I've always been telling stories. Um, And um, I've written a few books, including Branding Basics for Small Business and Rebooting My Brain, which is a story of my experience recovering from a brain aneurysm, which I know we may talk about today. And my latest book is The Empathy Edge. And I, um, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, with my husband and my young son and our feisty little mutt named Eddie. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so that's a little bit about me. How, I know you were a uh, management consultant at, at Accenture. How has yeah. your journey now uh, come about to having your own practice and, and where, where did the passion for helping people and, and, and merging empathy into the the because I do believe that a big part of your journey revolves around empowering others um how is that all tied together 
Well, yeah, I mean, we could have a whole hour on that, I think. But yeah, I started out in management consulting. I had studied marketing in college and always had a love for marketing because of the power of marketing to do good, mm. like to communicate and bring attention to good causes or good organizations or, you know, what I like to say is use marketing for good rather than evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after my stint as a management consultant, in which I was doing a lot of empathetic work, actually, because I was the voice of the user for new system implementations. So wow. we were representing the users to the programmers who didn't care what the user experience would be like. And then and we were also training and communicating to people about organizational redesign, about process redesign, things that really impacted their lives. And so I would, I've always been all about, you know, what is going to be the most compelling thing for this audience to hear? What do they need? Um, what can we communicate to them to answer all their questions, et cetera, et cetera. And then I jumped back into marketing, working for Discovery Networks for a while, working for an ad agency, and then moved to San Francisco, California. And I, I went through the dot-com boom and bust in the early 2000s <laughs> and then worked in technology yep. as a marketing executive for um, both scrappy startups and global software companies and got a little frustrated with, with technology marketing, marketing to people like they were robots and not like they were humans and telling stories and making an emotional connection. And so I had the opportunity due to different circumstances to start my own practice in 2008. And I decided to start that practice, Red Slice, focused solely on the brand, the brand strategy component. What is our story? Who are we? What do we stand for? How do we work? What value do we offer? And to whom do we offer it? So all throughout my marketing career, it's always been about taking the perspective of the, of the other person. Yeah. What do they think? What do they feel? What do they value? What do they need? Not so that we could force a solution on them that they didn't need, but about, I always say marketing is about elevating the truth of your story so that the people who need what you have can find you. I love that. And yeah, and so I, um, I really try to help companies make that emotional connection, even in the most, you know, they're selling like the most geeked out software or technology solutions. At the end of the day, they're still marketing to a human being. Mm. So who is that person and what do they need? What do they need to hear mm. from us? And my empathy exploration kind of a... <laughs> Sum it up, a couple of different things came together. Um, one, um, in the last five or six years, I was starting to hear more from clients that they wanted their brand impression to be that they were an empathetic organization. They were an empathetic mm -hmm. brand, which like 10 years ago, you never heard that, right? And so, so that was happening. And then the 2016 US election happened. <laughs> we don't need to go into that, but I was, I was really scared and really distraught over all the hate that I saw and all the, yeah. the just ostracizing of the other and how it just, was, it, it was this license to unleash this hate that I was just, I almost didn't recognize my country. And wow. um, I, my son was two and a half at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what kind of world is he gonna inherit? And and meanwhile, he's in, in preschool learning how to share and words are not for hurting. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, what is happening right now? So I was hearing this from a lot of clients and colleagues as well. They were getting really frustrated of like, well, what can I do with my platform? Like, I'm just a web designer or I'm just, you know, we just make software. Do we, do we all have to go join the Peace Corps to change the world? And so I started exploring empathy because 
I had also discovered through a strengths coach that one of my strengths was empathy, which I never would have said that to you if you had asked me that in the past. But um, I was like, okay, so all these themes are coming together for me right now. Maybe this is my next book. So I embarked on three years of research on how empathy benefits organizations, brands, and leaders, because I wanted to not write another book about the theory of empathy, but how do we put it into action so that whatever your business, can you be an empathetic model in the world and impact people in your family, in your community, in your customer base? And it was almost like those actions, those little actions every day it, are what is going to help make the world more empathetic. If we, if we can tackle empathy in the place where we spend the bulk of our time, if we use work as a, as a laboratory to practice and strengthen our empathy muscles, like our own little empathy gym, then that can't help but spill out into our personal lives. Because just telling us all to be nicer and be empathetic doesn't really help people figure out how to take action. So I focus the book really on what are the actionable things you can try to strengthen your empathy muscle and improve your own sphere of influence because we all have one, whether it's five people, whether, whether we are the CEO of a you know, multi-billion dollar organization or we're an independent consultant only working with a few people every year, you have a sphere of influence and so you can impact it. Yeah. I mean, I totally loved how you started that off by, by, by really honing into the power of marketing. I think that a lot of people sometimes fail to sometimes consider the advocacy or even standing up for a cause is marketing a one-on-one. And like, mm -hmm. and like I was even shooting at the, at, for Jack the Org, they're the largest youth mental health charity in Canada. And mm -hmm. uh, during my shoot, um, the, the, the head of communications, AJ walks up to me and she's like, Ali, do you know, do you know advocacy costs money right <laughs> i was like yep yep and do you know that advocacy is marketing right and like we were just brainstorming these ideas so like right. I, I i totally love the direction you you took um you know the power of marketing into into something good and into a, right. a good cause because i think that at the end of the day yeah i i am a mental health ambassador right uh, for the middle east but at the end of the day i i am a marketer you are yeah, you're helping to elevate the truth of the story. You're not trying to lie to people or con people, and that's what people think of when they think of marketing. But good marketers <laughs> don't lie, right? You don't. You shouldn't need to. And so, a lot of my work with clients and entrepreneurs is about let's talk about your strengths and what's true for you, and then let's elevate. Let's turn that into a story that can be compelling to people and cause them to take action. So, I've actually worked with a few nonprofits as well of bringing that that thinking to helping them with their cause and helping them increase funding and donors and all that mm. good stuff. So that's really what I love to do. What's one thing that um, you could, you could, you could tell us from maybe your experience working with uh, non-for-purpose or purpose-driven enterprises? Cause mm -hmm. I don't think that all purpose-driven enterprises are non-for-profit. Yes, you're um, right. Yeah. B Corps are doing amazing. And I, there's a hosting, I think that's another conversation that, you know, <laughs> that's uh, our next show. Yeah. yeah that's probably <laughs> for our next show. But what has worked and what doesn't, and what could our listeners really um, get out of uh, out of that sort of skill set of, of knowing what what works and what doesn't? So this is so funny because I just had this conversation this morning with someone I was doing a podcast with, <laughs> and it's I think what doesn't work, and I think you could talk about this macro about looking at the empathy gap in our society and why like just kind of guilting people into being nicer or more compassionate doesn't work is that. 
we don't take that marketing lens of like meeting people where they are and finding, yes, what's in it for them, right? It doesn't mean they're a bad person because they start doing something noble for a selfish reason. Because I fundamentally have seen, I believe and I've seen that people can transform from the outside in. Once they start engaging in these compassionate acts through the lens of empathy, they want to do more. And psychologists say that that's actually something about the way the human brain works. You know, when you're developing a habit of any type, it feels forced at first. You might not be doing it for the quote unquote right reasons, but when you try something and you get good feedback from the world, you want to do it more and more, and then it becomes part of your default operating system. Mm. So I think nonprofits or profit-driven businesses can, can focus less on the, on the like ethical and moral imperative of what they're doing. Not that they completely don't talk about it. That's, their, that's part of their story. But in order to compel donors and compel attention, really think like a marketer and say, well, what is in it? for this person to donate or to our cause or buy our products, not because they pity another group of people, but what's in it for them? Mm -hmm. Do they want to feel good? Is it ego? Can we tell them how what they do makes an impact, right? Is it that they um, just want to see themselves a certain way? Then maybe you need to speak to that. Is it, um, can you portray the people that you're helping with your organization less as victims yeah. and more as heroes in their own story. One, one woman I profiled in the book um, who started the social enterprise Fair Anita, it helps women in um, poorer countries, starting in Peru, but now she's global, um, helps them escape the cycle of domestic violence and sexual abuse. And it's through creating these groups of women that um, build crafts together, but then finding a market for those for those and not just because someone feels sorry for them they want to buy that bracelet mm. but hearing their story from an impact she's very careful in her marketing never to portray those women as victims yeah and more about um she's like i would never ask someone to buy something from my friend in minnesota because she's starving and she can't pay her rent and whatever she's like i would talk about the products i would talk about her strengths mm. and that's exactly what she does with the women that the artisans that she serves she tells their story from that perspective and that helps her customers feel. It's not just relying on pity or relying on, you know, well, you should just do this, just support this because it's the right thing to do. And then for noble reasons, but I think some nonprofits and, and purpose-driven enterprises fall back on that as an yeah. argument for why you should pay attention. Yeah. I, I, I love the fact that, you know, you feel, and I think a big part of empowering someone is empathizing with them. And I think yeah. that, that you have to understand the psychology and, uh, you know, the, 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 the inner inner picture of their world to be able to be where they're at. And we were talking about that just before we hopped on the show, we were talking about uh, just understanding uh, other people's perceptions of the world mm -hmm. and how important that was. And I mean, the empathy edge, when I when I say that, we're, and I I would have loved to have read the book to discuss a little, that that a little bit in depth. But what is the empathy edge exactly? Is what characteristics make someone have that empathetic edge as a as a leader or as a as a father or as a mother or right. as a friend? 
Well, I think I divide in the book, I talk about empathy in three different circles, leadership. So at the individual level, mm-hmm. culture, like the organization, the environment you create internally, and then externally as a brand, like how are you seen in the market by your customers, um, by your constituents, by your stakeholders. And so all the empathy edge means is that, again, I'm, I'm trying to bring skeptics to this way of thinking. So it's about, okay, fine. You know what? Empathy is actually good for business. Empathy increases, and there's data, there's research, there's studies. I share it in the book, right? It's, it increases innovation. It increases collaboration. It increases in some places, in some circumstances, stock price. It increases customer lifetime value. It creates more customer loyalty. It creates more word of mouth and buzz. So, and from a leadership perspective, it engenders more loyalty. You get better performing um, people on your team. They're, they're more willing to be, to go for, to bat for the company and to go to bat for you. So there's a wide swath of, of benefits that I talk about in each section. And really it's just about the fact ultimately that empathy is not uh, a soft skill. I, I mean, it is, but it's not something to be dismissed. Yeah. It actually gives you an edge in business and here's why. And the companies quite frankly, that don't bring about an empathetic culture, you probably know this better than, than, than me, but in <laughs> my research showed that with millennials and Gen Z, especially they're demanding a new type of workplace oh, 100%. and they want, I think over 70% of them want their workplace to feel like a second family, uh-huh. which is not something that I ever asked for. Right. And so they're demanding top talent coming into the workforce is demanding these kinds of environments. And those companies that don't listen will die. Yeah. Like it's not even, it's not even like they'll do less well, they, you know, so what they'll get along, like they won't be around. Yeah. And so if that's what forces skeptics to wake up and say, maybe I need to be looking at how we're, you know, the leaders we're hiring, maybe we need to be looking at our culture and how we're really supporting people in their personal and work lives. You know, maybe we need to take a look at our customer service policies and make sure they truly are empathetic and, you know, I always joke about, did the airline CEO actually ride and coach on their own airline? Because I don't <laughs> think they did. Like, they don't know what that experience is like, right? Yeah. So, um, the more that companies do that, the more of an edge in the market they get, period. So, that's the empathy edge. I, I actually <laughs> love what you said. Uh, I mean, I have adopted, and when I call the show Empathy Always Wins, I, I, I actually, um, and we were talking about that earlier on before we hopped on the show, it was okay, Ali, I'm, a, I'm an ambassador, I'm a marketer, but I'm, I studied business. Like I went to business school. Then mm-hmm. how could I reach to those business leaders via a word or via the acumen that they would digest? Because whenever I'd say mental health or whenever I'd say anything yeah. that I was doing, <laughs> they're like, no, yeah. I, would, I would get a, 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 a very weird allergic, you know, yeah. physical reaction. I was like, dude, no, no. Yeah. Like as you were talking about the empathy edge, increased innovation, collaboration, everything I have ever done was because of an empathetic approach. Just even taking yes. interest in understanding other people, just being curious. I think that you can't be curious or interested if you don't seek to understand. And when you seek to understand, that drives a little bit of a, a, a an empathetic approach to whatever you're doing. So I, and I think that in rebranding your book, it could be empathy always wins, you know? Just- oh, totally, totally. And you know what's funny? Just let's take a step back and define empathy in the context of this book and the lens through which I'm looking at it. Um, mm. 
you know, there's a lot of, as you probably know, there's a lot of different definitions of empathy out there. And even the definition over time has changed from like the 1500s to the 1800s to today. And I'm talking about empathy as a mindset of as being able to take another person's perspective, see things through their point of view, and then take action informed by that. And it's the action that's the compassionate act that falls out of that. Even if it's something someone doesn't want to hear, it can be the way that you do it is because you're seeing things from their point of view. One of my most empathetic bosses was someone who had to lay off the entire marketing team. The way that he did it and how his support for us and understanding our point of view was huge. And we're still close to this day, right? But let's let's be very clear. <laughs> and this is the thing where you have to sort of like take business people and shake them. Mm. Empathy is not being nice. You know, you can't create an empathetic organization just by hiring a bunch of really nice people. Empathy is not caving to like unreasonable demands. That's acquiescence. Empathy is a mindset of how you gather information and how you're able to silence the noise of your own ego in your head and open yourself up to seeing things from the other person's point of view and then acting accordingly. Again, not necessarily, quote, giving them what they want, but at least you understand where they're coming from and you can adapt in the moment. You know, empathy is all about that situational fluency, mm. adapting in the moment for the person in front of you. And that's why a lot of the habits and traits, you, you actually hit on some of them when you were talking about uh, being curious, practicing presence, um, listening well. Like those are all things that you need to consciously force yourself to do if you want to make room for an empathetic lens yeah. for people. So um, that's where I think a lot of business leaders get stuck. You've probably seen that too, that it's like, oh, that means I'm going to be weak or I'm going to be a doormat or it just means everyone's just, I'm just going to give everybody what they want when they're whining. Like <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that's a very, very, very important lens when we talk about, you know, toughness. And, and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very unique lens of seeing how um, tough, you know, as I was saying, just having a strong back yet leading with the soft front and mm -hmm. where you draw the lines with boundaries and barriers and, 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 and the art of actually approaching people uh, and, 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 and conducting, you know, uh, sometimes hard conversations and, uh, and, and enjoying the line there. But I want to now take us to your um, accident because I know you suffered a, a brain injury in 2008. And I think that was where I was like, that's something I hugely relate to, suffering a mental health illness myself and then starting this embarking this entire journey with the mental health magazine and power uh, mm -hmm. how have you been able to develop uh, develop your 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 empathetic brand and you you've managed to now write a, a hugely successful book on empathy overcome all of these challenges how has what trait could you say that we could sort of learn from a little bit of, uh, uh, around your story and in, in, in going through that experience. Yeah, and, and let me be really clear that like mental health issues are very different from someone suffering from a from a, a brain injury. Like, not to I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not here, but mm. um, yeah, in 2008 I had a ruptured brain aneurysm that caused a hemorrhage, and I was healthy, I was fit, I was like 35 at the time. Um, lots going on in my life. I had just launched my own business. So completely unexpected, but 
it turns out one in 50 people have an unruptured aneurysm that they may never know about because it may never rupture or cause any problems. This one did. Um, and it, it left me in the hospital for six weeks and then going through group rehab and, and home rehab. And I, I, I luck, luckily I didn't have any major physical issues, but I did have co what they call cognitive deficits. So I had trouble with vocabulary recall for a while. If you think of like a stroke victim recovering, because yeah. this was a form of stroke. Um, I had trouble with sort of processing a lot of information at one time. Like if too much coming at me at one time, I would sort of freeze. And I was always very good at multitasking before then. And now I'm like, no, I got to focus. Um, and then some, some emotional and behavioral issues did do impact people with brain injury, things like depression, things like, and that's where I think that the mental health intersection oh, yeah. comes in. And like how um, you don't see it, like how no one recognizes You don't see it. You like cannot self-assess. Yeah. 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 And well, and they, great. yeah, that you, that was the thing is like, you look fine, like you're healed now, but, but with brain injury of any type, you have to adjust to a new normal. Yeah. You have to adapt to a new, a new me. And it's mm. because of, you have to find ways around your cognitive deficits to get to your goals. Like, okay, so I'm not as good at multitasking anymore. Like, what can I do? You know, I'm not as good as, at memorizing names as I used to. How am I going to get around that? You know, again, the too much information coming at me, how does that impact my work as a, as a brand consultant? Because a lot of what was impacted for me because of where my hemorrhage was were my executive functions. So the things I need to do my job, right? So um, I learned strategies, I got help. And I think that's the biggest thing that's the overlap here is um, I wrote a book about this experience called Rebooting My Brain that yeah. you may want to check out. But the core lessons I got out of that, how I, what I call getting back on my feet again, right? Because I would never say, you never say healed. You never say, you know, whatever the words are, like it's, it's over because it's never over, right? It's never but over. It's never over, right? <laughs> it's but never it's, over. Yeah. I still, even today, like it's been, what, 12 years? Like I still stumble upon things that get me stuck, right? But the, one, of the, one of the biggest lessons I learned was, well, let me talk about three, right? First one is being patient, which is not easy for me as a redhead and an Italian. <laughs> Maybe you can relate. Um, so, um, but, I, um, but it's about being patient with your progress and understanding that you can't go zero to 60 in one day. Yeah. But it's about, it's about taking small steps every day and looking at the upward trajectory. Like, are we going, is the trend line going in the right way, right? So being patient with your own progress. Number two was about um, asking for help. That was key. Like I was always very stubbornly independent and sometimes you need help. And it's actually stronger to ask for help when you need it than to flail and struggle because you'll actually get to your goals faster if you ask for help. Like, that's the way I look at it. People go like, no, I don't wanna ask for help because I, I might be too weak. I don't wanna tell anybody what I'm going through. It's like, do you, if you wanna to get to success faster, ask for help. Yeah. <laughs> ask someone who's been there, talk to someone. Like, that is not weak, that is actually smart and strong. That shows that you're actually finding a new way to get to your goals, right? Mentorship and then, is great for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, you can relate to a lot of this, but um, it's, it's okay to rely on people. It's okay to talk to them. But, and the third one is really about finding the humor in your situation, <laughs> yeah. which no matter what, I know, you know, some people might not think it's appropriate 
Um, but if humor helps you diffuse the situation or humor helps you enable to have a conversation about a difficult mm. topic, right? Yeah. If that's how, that's empathy, right? If that's yeah. how you need to get people into the mix yeah. and, yeah. and help them feel safe, it's okay to have humor. It lowers your blood pressure. It helps you think clearly. Like we don't right. all have to be like, this is the most dire thing happening ever, right? Um, so finding humor, even in the really, really darkest, blackest times is I think a key to resilience, those are all sort of keys to resilience in general, but um, I think you could equally apply those to anyone suffering from mental health issues, as well as anyone suffering from adversity of any kind. And I think what really ties all of, uh, all of these points together, being patient, asking for help and finding the humor is being empathetic with our own self. Yes. You know, like sometimes oh we're like, oh, this is how I should be. This uh, type of leader that I need to be. This is how people are going to reach out to people. Just take a step back and like be empathetic with your own self. Because sometimes we have a saying in Arabic, whoever mm-hmm. does not have something cannot give that something to someone completely. And like, that's something that, you know, when we, when I personally talk to a lot of leaders out there, um, you, they they're hard on themselves and oh, to, yeah. to a point where they're they have bits and pieces that are broken within themselves so how can you give empathy and, and, and love unconditional love to mm-hmm. to just to to, to to someone or, or or subordinate or someone that you're supposed to lead and i think what we do not talk about a lot is how to be empathetic within our own self. Some people coin word it as self-love, self-care, self-respect. But in true honesty, when you talk to sort of the, the some of the leaders out there of, of the of the older generation that sort of don't really digest those sort of softy words, as 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 may, some people may think, even though I don't think that they're soft, but being empathetic with with our own selves, I think that's something we need to. Um, and I'd love your take on that. Yeah. So I actually have a quote in the book from uh, from Buddhism about the fact that you can't be compassionate towards others until you have compassion for yourself. I mean, mm. not talking about the differences in the book. I define the difference between empathy and compassion, but it's it's that same mindset of the number one habit you can practice to become a more empathetic leader that I have in the book. The actionable thing mm. is practice presence. Because if you don't silence that noise in your own head and put your ego aside and have that capacity to take on someone else's perspective, Mm. there's no room for it because I'm too worried about my stuff and how hard I am being on myself and whatever. So if you don't have compassion for yourself, if you don't have empathy for yourself, how can you show it to other people? How can you, how can you have that lens for other people as well? It has to start with, with how you, you kind of heal yourself. And I, I used to think that was super woo woo <laughs> and just like, I don't want to yeah. talk about that, but yeah, you do. You kind of, you need to heal. You need to, to take a look at how you're, you're, you're dealing with yourself so that you have the room and the capacity. It's, it's putting your you know oxygen mask on before you help others on the plane. It's the same concept. And like looking at that from a master sort of macro standpoint, I think that even when you're in a sales pitch uh, a, a room, listening to what you're inviting, just mm-hmm. reading body language, you have to have that ability to sign. I think we, we really don't um, take into consideration that at the core of that behavior or that discipline, it's empathy because, yeah. because that's how you win deals. And I think that one thing, one thing that really makes your work stand out to me, that's a personal, um, that's something personally that I, I'd love to comment is, is how 
how empathy and cash flow, how empathy and creative, how empathy and, and, and wealth and, and making money do coexist. And yeah. it's not something that sort of, uh, yeah, I, I love that about your work. And I'd love to have you comment on that as well. Yeah. So empathy is the number one skill of successful salespeople. I talk about that in the book because hey. you, are, you are situationally <laughs> relating to the person in front of you, meeting them where they are and, and tailoring what the conversation to what they care about and what they need. We spoke about that a little bit at the top of the interview, but um, yeah, it, you absolutely, that. you can, you can change the paradigm of success within an organization and yes, cash flow, creativity and compassion can coexist. And this is what I love about pulling, you know, this three years of research into this one book. Here's the case, right? Here's the data. Here's the research. Like, you, you can't argue with this. There are, and you know, the stories of the brands that I tell that are, that are acting with empathy and dominating their markets. Mm. So it's not an and or. It's, it's not a, you know, this or that. It's this and this yes. can be the definition of success. And there's enough models in the environment now that we can look to to say, oh, there is a different way to do this and be mm. successful. Would 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 em, would the empathy edge be a be a be a very good starting point to a youth change maker or a youth purpose driven oh, leader? Absolutely. So I I actually interviewed um, someone in the book, Eric Dawson, who's the CEO and founder of Peace First, mm. and they uh, they empower youth all over the world to become change makers now, not wait till they grow up, yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. And so. Yes, empathy is a big part of his practice. He was, he was part of the Start Empathy Initiative as an Ashoka Fellow. And it's all about embedding empathy in everything we do, but also activating empathy as a catalyst for change. Mm. And so even, even youth leaders, they, they probably have a bent towards empathy, I would guess anyway, but then figuring out how to operationalize it. That's really what the book offers is like, Again, not just relying on hiring all the nicest people you can, and then that's how you build an empathetic culture. No, you can actually operationalize empathy into your organization or your project or your work through the rewards or accountability. And yes, the dirty words, processes and policies, but <laughs> you can make it really easy for people to, to adopt an empathetic mindset yeah. when you operationalize it and make it part of the fabric of how the organization runs. Mm. Yeah, I, I I think that that I, I, you know it makes it makes it a little bit more attractive for someone of my generation to hear mm -hmm. you speak in that language. I think it's more sexier, if I may. Like, yeah. it just, it, just <laughs> it just is. Hear, hear what we've been uh, hear what we've been taught uh, at a business school, which I mean mm -hmm. is very important. But I think mm -hmm. it, you have to you know failing mm -hmm. to innovate using the lingo that we are used to and what we need. Yeah. You've said it. I think that the companies are, companies are going to die who that, 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 that do not innovate and meet our needs. We are unfortunately yeah. lonelier than ever as a generation. Uh, mm -hmm. We seek connection more so than anything else. Mm -hmm. We seek happiness, adventure, fulfillment. We do not care. Our generation does not care mm -hmm. about making money as, as much as we care about having fun because we see a lot right. of, older miserable and sorry about that, older miserable of, people no it's true older very miserable people and we act, yeah we have we have mistakenly attributed wealth for misery and like uh, loneliness and that's and sometimes that that makes us a little bit anxious so i love the fact that you've approached empathy in such a tactical way yet such a very practical way 
You know what I love about what you just said is, is I, you know, we have these conversations all the time, especially someone who's kind of running my own business now for 12 years. And I never thought I'd run my own business. You know, I was quite happy being in a cushy corporate <laughs> success track. And, um, but throughout my career, like I talked about, there were times that I saw like, wow, this company has this such influence to, to change the community or the world for good. And they're not using it. Mm-hmm. And for me, I see, I see money not as a dirty word, but as an instrument you can use to make the world better. Like yes. Oprah makes the world better because she's a gazillionaire and she is able to give back. She's able to start schools. She's able to do all these things. And so if we look at money, money as, a, as a tool, not as a like destination of like success, but as a tool that enables us and also a responsibility. This is huge for me is when with great success comes great responsibility Oh yeah. as a responsibility to then give back. So even if you don't have money, there's this idea of giving back, reaching your hand back behind you and pulling up someone behind you, right? Mm-hmm. Mentorship. Yeah. But also when you have money, you're able to support good causes. You don't have to join the Peace Corps. Maybe you just give money to the people that are willing to be on the front lines and willing to do that work and say, I'm going to support you financially because your cause or your project needs finances to sustain itself. Like that's just the reality, right? So um, no one's saying you, you only give the money and you don't have heart as you do it. But I, I love this idea of like we we can, we've created as humans the definition of corporate success, right? Yeah. So we can change it. Yeah. It's and not a law of doing. physics. That's what we're right. doing as a generation. That's exactly, exactly you're, you're seeing uh, kids right now, and not, not kids, but like youth yeah. change, taking, take, like uh, Greta Thunberg and so many other. Oh I mean, my gosh. Greta yeah. just someone that comes to mind, but there's so many other yeah. impactful change makers. And with that being said, I, 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 I just feel that we are living in a generation that, um, that that empathy has become sort of a winning characteristic and a winning trait. And I know I'm being biased here, and that's the no, show's no. called Empathy Always Wins. But I truly believe that uh, you know toxic masculinity, so many things within the workplace that sometimes need to be disrupted, will totally be banished by just the mere fact of adopting uh, some, not all of the empathetic characteristics that we've, because active listening is something that could prevent divorces from, it's just, that, that's just something that that's out there. And there's so many ways to become great at empathy, because I, as you said, mm-hmm. it's, it's a skill that can be developed, mm-hmm. but um, I'll just leave the floor open up to you if you have something you'd love to add. Well, I just wanted to make you feel good that it's not just your bias. The data shows that <laughs> millennials <laughs> and Gen Z are among the most diverse generations entering the workforce ever. They're also among the most, and I know the generations hate being labeled as no, like it's, it's blanket, a- but it's also, there's also, it's, there's also studies that have shown they're much more empathetic because they understand more about the world than previous generations did. They have more access to information more quickly than ever before, right? Because of social media and video. And so these are the, these are the generations driving the change in the workplace. And that's why when I give these talks as companies, I was like, I know y'all like to, you know, rail on millennials being lazy or whatever. And I'm like, here's what they're doing, by the way, they're doing the stuff that we weren't brave enough to do and ask for in the workplace. When they look at diversity, they're not looking at diversity as this pretty little pie chart of how many women do I have? How many, you know, people of color? Yeah. We stopped there. Like, 
I'm, I'm Gen X. So like we stopped at just the like representation, but what makes diversity work in an organization is empathy because otherwise you're just a bunch of different people staring at each other at a table, disagreeing with each other Mm. without empathy. You can't harness that power of diversity to actually have a better business outcome. Mm. And the incoming talent generations are actually connecting those dots and saying, if you as a company aren't smart enough to harness the diversity of thought, and if you don't have women and people of color on your board and in your executive team, then I don't think you're making very good decisions. I don't think I want to work here. Yeah. And I actually just saw an article like fly by my my LinkedIn feed or something. I didn't get a chance to check it out, but it said how how no women on the board is, is a sign that your company makes bad decisions. Yeah. Oh, I I, I completely, completely is huge. Completely agree. That's just huge. Yeah, and when, so that's what I'm excited about. Like about that about the incoming talent generations. I was like, yeah, go like. We need we need people to be questioning and disrupting. Speaking. We are speaking. We we are using yes. our voices and, and 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 you know I have a keynote in like two days at the largest Arab youth conference here. It's oh all about gosh. harnessing the power of community in the digital era. We, as as Gen as, as borderline Gen Gen Z or millennials, have been able to utilize mediums that have never been utilized or have just simply been there and have leveraged them to their maximum capabilities Mm -hmm. to bring together strong, powerful messages, communities, movements to elevate, you know, all any purpose or any any mission driven change that we want to see in the world. And I think that, you know, what you're saying goes perfectly hand in hand with what we're seeing now in the world, TikTok and so many other platforms completely blowing away um, hours of attention, hours of youth spending mm-hmm. time and consumption. <clears throat> this is where mm-hmm. we need to like shift our gears, uh, gears and, and, and attention towards. And I think that yeah. with what you're saying, uh, you know, making fun of us sometimes we're we're actually building things that, you know, yeah. that probably you wouldn't understand till they happen and then you'll be like holy wow i know exactly work out there and you know not everything has to be you know we can find a balance between those tools being used for like insignificant very selfish things like people taking selfies of themselves all over the place or you know talking about celebrity gossip we can find a balance between that and then actually remembering how powerful these tools are yeah i'm not saying like we make them all serious like no, they have to be dealing with global issues of change or we shouldn't be. But yeah, we can have our fun and we can talk about, because those are that's those things bring us together too, Yeah. right? The fun stuff. Yeah. So how can we use them and, and how can we use them where they're not being used to amplify hate yeah. as they are in many situations? Because that's, that's the unfortunate you know, price you pay for yeah. that connection is it also amplifies all these groups that used to live in the shadows. Yeah. And now, you know, they're preaching hate, they're preaching discord. So finding a way to balance that is super important. I think that links very well with the parallel of being a nice guy or being a nice woman mm-hmm. and, and just having to manage both sides of the spectrum. I think that those tools, just as you know, important as they are in connecting, just as we can be very important and mm-hmm. have a soft front in connecting people, we just need mm-hmm. to understand where we draw boundaries. And I think this is where we probably, uh, on, on, on the other episode that we will schedule to have, <laughs> We we can talk about boundaries for for. for I know. Well, and and you know what's great about this? Like this, the reason I also wrote the book is like, if you want to change 
the way you act. Like maybe your company's a lost cause and you, you feel like you can't turn that ship around or whatever. But if you can change the way you act, or if you have a smaller company and you, you run it, let's say you're an entrepreneur or CEO, and you make a decision to run it, you become these bright lights. You yes. become like the models of success that I profiled in the book. And my goal is to make, this is really oversimplifying it. Like mm-hmm. I want to make the mean people, the outliers. I want to make, I want to normalize empathy and compassion as a marker for success. And so when you run across the ones that treat their employees badly or their toxic manager, they become like the freaks, right? (laughs) For lack of a better word, I want to make them be the ones. And this doesn't sound very empathetic now that I'm saying it out loud, but at least in terms of a model, I want it to be like, let me look to this because I'm seeing all these other, it's just like, it's just like when you see yourself reflected in stories on screen, right? You can see what you can be. Yeah. And so if you, if we have more and more brave, whether you're an employee or a leader or whatever, if they start to adopt this and have this success, we have more and more models of this type of success to turn to. Yeah. And that would be wonderful. Yeah. And I rephrased, I would say good people always win. <laughs> right. And I hate saying like the bad and good. It sounds very judgy or the right and wrong, but I, I would almost say people always win. Yeah. Like whatever they're deciding to do, even when they sometimes have to make tough decisions yeah. um, that might not be popular, mm-hmm. but they're, the way that they operate is mm-hmm. so compassionate. Yeah. And there's so many groups out there that I talk about. You'll, you'll actually really appreciate the story at the end of the book um, in the last chapter, but there's so many groups out there working with super young kids mm-hmm. on empathy so that they don't even – they don't even need a book about it. Yeah. It's just going to become part of their identity and part of how they operate in the world. And that is the only thing that gives me hope for my almost six-year-old son. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're, we're definitely on a mission. It's just not me and Eric Dawson. There's so many other people that are, yeah. that are doing uh, great things. And uh, Maria, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the conversation. I could talk to you for hours, but yeah. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) I know we're both on a tight schedule. So with that being said, if there's anything you'd like to add, I mean, it's not going to be our last time for sure. No, that's okay. Our work is uh, definitely very, very much. Yeah. No, I just, I would, I would love people to check out the book and there's contact information for me in, in the back. So I would love to hear what they think. I would love them to post a review, good, bad, ugly on Amazon. To again, get the conversation going. Um, so, you know, and if people want to reach me, I'm at red-slice.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Instagram, we'll I'm Red Slice Maria. And the link in the bio. So it's perfect for people to. Perfect. To, to, yeah. To, to, it's then it's easy to write for it our down. listeners to. Yeah. Because yeah. I think you're very approachable. You, 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 you're, you're such a sweet um, person on, on email as well. Like you're Thank very, you. very, very fast and responsive. So again, with that being said, um, yeah, I feel like we've pretty much covered everything. And I just want to say, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your work in the world. Honestly. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Take that to heart. Thank you, Maria, for such an incredible episode. I know that we have been not the best over the past couple of months. I would like to apologize to all our listeners for taking a little bit of a break and uh, not being too vocal about it but for those of you that follow me personally on my instagram you would probably be familiar by the fact that 
I've started the Middle East Celebrity Mental Health Podcast. And that's been taking a little bit of a toll on me, but I have now found the balance to maintain a great leadership show and a great mental mental health show, even though that mental health show is in Arabic. So again, I would just like to say a very warm thank you to everyone that has still stuck by, regardless of how crazy this may have been. And for those that perhaps are listening and are tuning in for the first time, I'd love to offer my warm thank yous because at the end of the day, this is something that I started out of my own heart. And I didn't really think that it would land a number one position on Apple or I didn't really do anything because of any result. I kind of really, really like the process. So with all your comments and with all your love, I really, as cheesy as it sounds, I just really want to say thank you. And I'm not going to take too much of your time because I know that you've given me quite enough by now. But make sure to follow me at Ali Salama on Instagram and make sure you follow the podcast at Empathy Always Wins. I'll see you next week with an incredible new guest. We will dissect a little bit more on how we can really be empathetic as leaders and how actually having feelings does not make you a softie. It actually makes you more emotionally intelligent. So again, Maria, the Empathy Edge. Thank you. Bam! I thought we stopped recording. Anyways. <laughs>